You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and before we get into the text this morning, i got just a, kind of a little story to share to kind of, kind of set the tone where we're going today. So once upon a time, there was this uh, coastline community that were living right along the coastline, and in this particular coastline was a very dangerous area uh, for ships that were trying to navigate the waters. And this community, uh, over time, realized that uh, because of the dangers that the sea uh, that was inherent in the sea and around their coastline, that there were lots of shipwrecks and that people would be stranded in the water. And, and this community came to the realization that they have a responsibility to those folks off their coastline who are, who are dying in the water. So they put together a makeshift shelter hut right on the coastline, and they got together some old boats and whatever rope they could find and whatever life preservers they could find, and, and they just basically stocked this shed with what they could find. And, and then there were people who volunteered their time to kind of man the station, even in the middle of the night, always watching the waters to see if a shipwreck had occurred, that they could row out into the ocean and save as many people as they could save. And they were very effective. As a matter of fact, they were so effective that the people all over the community were talking about the, the rescue efforts that were happening. It seemed like every day there was a new story about a new person who'd been rescued out of the water that would have died uh, in those waters if they had not acted. Over time, the community, uh, because of their support for this little outpost, this life-saving station on their coastline, because of all the effectiveness they were having, the community got together and said, you know what, they really need some new boats. And they, they need new equipment, and, and, and they need a new building that will help them uh, be even more effective in their mission to rescue people out of the ocean. So they began to gather money, and they began to, to find, buy some good boats and some rope and some buoys and some life preservers. And the next thing you know, what used to be a little shack uh, with just broken down equipment is now a really nice facility where they have training going on, and they've got all kinds of, of new laws and regulations that they've put in place just to make sure that everybody stays safe. Well, the more policies and the more equipment and the, and the nice building that they had, eventually something odd begins to happen. Now remember, their, their original mission for why that life-saving station was there is to rescue people who are drowning. But interestingly, over time, they begin to be so focused on their equipment and so focused on their building and so focused on their training and so focused on their guiding principles and rules and everything that they put in place. What happened is over time, there were shipwrecks that were happening off their coastline, but yet very few people were rowing out anymore. As a matter of fact, it was getting harder and harder to find volunteers that were willing to row the boat out into the water and simply pull people out of the water. And as time goes on, more and more focus was on the equipment, the building, and the volunteers rather than the people who are out in the water potentially drowning. Well, eventually, inside the organization, there become this schism. People begin to kind of point fingers at one another. 
Uh, they began to talk about how they lost their vision and how that they were no longer really focused. And one group said they needed to do this. They needed more equipment. And, and one group says, no, no, we need a bigger building. And they begin to fight with one another inside. And one group says, well, fine, we're just going to go down the coast and we're going to build another building. We're going to start our own mission, our own life-saving station, and, and we'll do it our way. Well, over time, more and more people split off and more and more life-saving stations are built along the coastline. But what's really Really amazing and interesting is less and less people are being pulled out of the water. It's because that there is something that had infected their mission. Their mission was to pull people out of the water. Pretty straightforward, right? But over time, it became more about buildings and supplies and people inside the organization. It became, it became more about the people on the inside rather than the people out in the water. And what's amazing is, is that their mission, their purpose for existing was those people out there. But over time, it became the people in here. I think you've probably picked up on where this parable is going, right? We have churches all over the Bible Belt who began at some point in their journey with a focus on reaching people who are drowning. And you know that to be an analogy for people who are lost. But over time, it seems as though the attention came off of those who are drowning and came inside to more about our buildings and our programs and our people and our, the ones who are already in the lifeboat, the, one, the ones who are already on shore, the ones who are already safe in the arms of Jesus. It seems like the focus came off of those out there and came on to those on the inside. And what we call that is mission drift. It's a slow fade is really what it is. Is over time, we lose focus on what we're to really be about. And Jesus was crystal clear about this. There's no gray area here. There's no confusion about what a church is to be about, and that is the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 4, 19, he says, you follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That sounds like a rescue operation. That, that sounds like a group of people who have been rescued who are now going to be sent back out to rescue more. But yet, in the American church, we have more and more and more and more, and yet every year, less and less and less people who are hearing the gospel, responding to it, and following up with baptism and growth and faith. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? If you're online this morning watching us, I'd invite you to do the same thing. See, the reality is, is either you're in the boat or you're in the water. And I want to speak to those of you in the boat. What I mean by that is those of you who put your faith in Jesus, those who have come from darkness into light, those who've been adopted by God. Your sins have been forgiven. You are in the security of, of salvation that that we understand that that is not something that can be lost ever. What I want you to do this morning as we prepare to pray, I want you to envision in your mind's eye that one in your family, that one in your business, that one at your school, that one in your circle of influence that is in the water. They're drowning. Maybe you've realized recently or maybe you've realized for a long time that they're lost. It could be your spouse. 
It could be one of your children or grandchildren. It could be your boss. It could be the, the one you play golf with or go shopping with. It could be the one who services your car. But I want you to bring one person in your mind's eye right now that's drowning. Yet, you are in the safety of the boat of salvation where Jesus has changed your life. Now, I want you to see their face. I want you to hear their voice. And I want you to realize that that person you have in your mind's eye right now is going to spend eternity in one of two places. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that several weeks ago. One of two places. Father in heaven, for those of us who found the security of salvation and we know that it's eternal, we know that we didn't do anything to save ourselves and we can't do anything to lose it. But Father, we were saved to something. We were saved to a work. And that work is to go back out into an ocean of sin and culture that is broken and stick an arm out over the side of the boat in the form of the gospel, both spoken and lived out. But Father, everything, everything that we're seeing is that less and less people are rowing out into the boat. Less and less people are sticking an arm over the side. Less and less people are getting to hear the gospel, even in our own community. More and more people are in the safety of the boat, but very few are willing to row, and very few are willing to reach over the edge of that boat. So, Father, I pray for every person who's found redemption, has been changed by the gospel, that, Father, they'd see that face, they'd hear that voice, that we would all know that we bear responsibility to go, to share, to live out what we believe. But, Father, equally true, there are people here this morning and online that are not in the boat. They're in the water, and they know it. Everything about their life, everything about their choices, everything, everything that they're focused on reveals the reality that they are sinking in sin, separated from a holy God. They may have religion, they may have rituals, they may have other things, but they don't have you, and therefore... They are destined for one place. Father, I pray that you bear down upon their soul this morning. I pray that there's no way, no way they could just kind of sidestep the work that you're doing in their heart even now. Father, we lift up all those that are drowning, all those that are struggling, all those that are hurting, all those that are far, far from you. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. We thank you for your word. God has sent it this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. False teachers was a plague that Timothy was having to deal with in Ephesus. We've already talked quite a bit about this culture at Ephesus, the sexual immorality that was going on, not much different than what we see today. Timothy has been set, sent to Ephesus to be the pastor of the only life-changing, life-saving station in the entire city of Ephesus, which has over 200,000 people in it and even thousands more flocking into the city to see the show and to engage in all kinds of immorality. Paul has said to Timothy, Timothy, you stand by your calling and you stand by your post. And, and Timothy, by standing by your post, make sure you proclaim the gospel and make sure you protect the gospel because there are people who are seeking to undermine it. Paul highlights two of them. 
He says there were two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that, that had to be asked to leave the church because they were tearing down rather than building up. And Paul says that I turned them over to Satan so that they may not learn, but they may learn not to blaspheme. They were speaking against God and they were speaking against God's people. And Paul did the right thing. He stepped up and he said, you guys are no longer part of this fellowship. He protected the gospel. He protected the unity of the church and he did what he had to do. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, you stand by your calling. Timothy, remember when hands were laid on you and you were prayed for. And during that prayer session, there were prophecies that came about talking about who you would become come and what you would be about. So Timothy, do not acquiesce to the culture and do not compromise your convictions. Now, Paul is ready to give some, well, practical advice. One of the themes of this first letter is the household of God and how the household of God is supposed to be focused, how it's supposed to operate, what it, what it means to lead and to serve inside the household, God, household of God, the church. And he's going to begin that here in chapter 2. But what's going to surprise you is the first thing that Paul tells Timothy to do. If the church is under attack and the gospel is under attack and, and Timothy may be wavering at times in his call, and that seems to be the case, th then you would imagine that Paul would say to Timothy, Timothy, here's the first thing you must do. The first thing you must do is make sure you are correctly teaching God's Word, or he would say, rightly dividing. Now, Paul's going to say that, but that's not the first thing. You would imagine that Paul would say to Timothy, Timothy, with all that's going on in your culture, Timothy, what you need to do is you need to form a group who will go out and picket in the streets and, and with megaphones and signs, picket what's going on and speak out in the public square about what's going on in Ephesus. No doubt this church is going to speak against the immorality, but that's not the first thing. Uh, maybe, maybe you would think that Paul would say to Timothy, Timothy, it's time for a great big evangelistic outreach. Because if the city is broken and the gospel is the answer, then, then we need to do some kind of big street evangelism. We need to go out and we need to hit the streets and knock on doors. That's a great thing. And certainly what Paul is going to tell Timothy to do by standing by the gospel, what we're going to see today is that, that people need to hear the gospel. But guess what? That's not the first thing. All those things are good. But here's what Paul says is the first thing. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, our urge... But supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's the first thing. Was that what you were thinking? You know, we, uh, we in the American church, especially in, in the Southern Baptist denomination, we're people of action, right? People of action. Action means we hit the streets and we go out there and we, we do one-on-one -on -one or one-on-a-group -on group or we do outreach, and that's exactly the right thing to be doing. But Paul says that's not the first thing to be doing. Because if we go out there without the power of prayer, guess whose strength we're trying to do that work in? Ourselves. Paul says, no, Timothy, do not be lured into thinking that we've got to go out there and be people of action without first being people of prayer. Prayer must always precede action. As a matter of fact, prayer is the work of the ministry. If we're talking about protecting and proclaiming the gospel, the work of that is prayer. You know what I've, I'm beginning to find, and I've seen this several times in my life, and I think I'm at a point now where I'm really, really beginning to kind of settle down into this. It's really about the basics of the Christian faith. 
you know, I'm all for technology and I'm all for the things that that has brought to us. Matter of fact, in this building right now, we have all this technology that's in here that's giving us the opportunity to connect with people in more than 15 states and now more than 12 countries. I'm all about that. That's awesome. But prayer must be the guiding first thing that we do before the technology, before I preach, before you engage. Prayer must be the foundation. And if we ever get ahead of that, if we ever, if we ever get to the point where prayer is not the first thing, then we are in big, big trouble. Because all that's left is our strength. And how's that working out? Not so well. Look at what he says. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. You know, we could look at each of those different words. I, th I think on the one hand, Paul's just giving us some synonyms of, of prayer. In other words, pray in all kinds of ways. But again, you could look at it from another standpoint where he says supplications. When you look how that Greek word is used, it seems to indicate basically making our requests known to God. Maybe those personal requests that you have. Maybe things in your life that are, that are not going well. Things where you're missing the mark. Maybe where your, your family's off track. Or maybe your job is, is, is gone crazy. You're praying specifically for needs that you have. And what's incredible about this is that the God of this universe invites us to do exactly that. Listen, the things that you think are mundane, the, th the things you think that, that God certainly couldn't be concerned about this little thing in my life, oh, tell, let me tell you, he is deeply concerned about that. And he invites you to speak with him. And, and by the way, him speak to you. It's a conversation. Prayer is a conversation. Even about the most, what you might even consider mundane things. Uh, maybe... Maybe your outgo has exceeded your income. You ever been there before? The bills are bigger than the paycheck. And you're trying everything you can to just stay above water. Did, did you know that God wants you to talk to him about that? He does. He's interested in that. He, he, he's interested, interested in every aspect of your life. That child or grandchild that's beginning to just really drive you nuts. God wants you to talk to him about that, and he wants to talk to you. He has some things he wants to say to you about that. How does God speak? Well, through his word. It's incredible to me that in my prayer time, when I'm praying and I'm in God's word, all of a sudden the answer to my prayers are right here in God's word, clearly as they can be. God is speaking. Are you listening? Do, do, do you care to slow down long enough to hear what he has to say? Paul says, Timothy, the first thing you must do is have a conversation with God. That conversation includes you asking him the desires of your heart, that he's welcoming you into his presence. Jesus paid the price for you to be able to do that. So, Timothy, do not forsake that. But notice this. He says also in intercessions, praying for others, that there are other people that are in need of prayer, that there are people in your circle of influence that you work with, they may have not shared anything with you specifically, but they are in desperate need of prayer. He says here, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Boy, I tell you, I can, I can really do well with lists. Sometimes I don't do so well in giving him praise and great gratitude for what he's already done. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure, make sure you're thanking God and giving him gratitude and honor for what he's already doing in your life. He says here, not necessarily praying for every single human being. He says there, the thanksgivings be made for all people. What he's talking about is all types of people. In your circle of influence, you've got people who are, who are a different ethnicity than you. They have a, a different upbringing than you. 
They have a different worldview than you. They see the world totally different than the way you see it. They maybe have other aspirations in life that, that you can't make any sense out of. It may be that they have things in their life that are addictions that, that you've never had to struggle with. But what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, make sure you're praying for all types of people, all kinds of people that are in your purview, that you're praying for them and lifting them up because every one of them needs your intercession. We have a tendency towards selfishness. It's, you know, it's part of that flesh that we deal with. And our prayers can become very selfish. I know you got pain and I know you got hurt going on in your life and you need to raise that up before God, but there are people around you that are depending on you. They may not voice it, they may never say it, but they need you to pray. You may be the only disciple of Jesus in their life. The only one. He says, not only praying for all types of people, but look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We don't have time to turn over to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. I'd encourage you to read that text. It's a convicting text, especially for the day and age in which we live. In thir Romans 13, Paul says that, and it's kind of what Ed was alluding to a little while ago, that kings, leaders, people in power, presidents, all these people who have a lot of power and influence, did you know that God has put them there? Did you know that, that God is behind the scenes turning the hearts of kings and leaders, turning their hearts in the palm of his hand is the way he sees fit? You may not agree with the president we have right now, or you may be overjoyed. I don't know. I can tell you this. Based off of what Romans 13 tells us and based off what 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us, that we have a responsibility, even if you disagree or even if you agree, you have a responsibility to pray for that individual because that individual is there under the sovereignty and guidance of God Almighty, the creator of this universe. And it says there in Romans chapter 13 that the role of government is to protect, to uphold the law, to make sure that a, a society can function because societies can't function in chaos. And even some of the most ungodly kings, the most ungodly rulers that we see all over the world, even in those ungodly rulers, you still have some kind of, some kind of law being adhered to within those communities where at least some kind of peace, maybe not much, but at least some kind of peace is not overrun by complete chaos. Paul says here to Timothy, Timothy, you pray for those kings and you pray for those leaders because I believe Paul knew, and maybe Timothy was experiencing, that there can be leaders over you that if you're not very careful, you can get so hateful about and so bitter about and so angry about that, that, that you can't even begin to see that leader is even as a human being anymore. I have heard comments said over the last, well, many years, depending on which person is leading, just ungodly things coming out of the mouths of people who say they're followers of Jesus, treating other human beings as though they're subhuman, simply because we disagree politically and in our worldview. You see, Timothy and Paul both had a great opportunity to have hatred and bitterness in their heart towards a king. Let me tell you about a guy named Nero. You see, Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome. You have Augustus, you have Tiberius, you have Caligula, and Claudius. Claudius adopted Nero. 
And Nero became king at age, or emperor, at age 16. Can you imagine that? The emperor of Rome at age 16? Now, when he started out, it, it seemed as though he was going to be somewhat moderate. It seemed like he was, uh, was going to be kind of even-handed. And it seemed like he was going to be a pretty balanced ruler. But as time would go on, and, and during his rule, he would, he would promote the arts and culture. He would, he would really promote athletic games. As a matter of fact, he would participate in some of those athletic games. He loved them. His rule began, began about 20 years after Jesus was crucified. 14 of the 27 New Testament books, 14 of them were written under his rule. Paul, when Paul said in Acts that he's going to appeal to Caesar, he was talking about Nero. When Paul was in jail, shackled to a Roman soldier, it was under Nero's command. Now, Nero started out somewhat even-handed, but as time goes on, he became one of the most evil rulers the world has ever seen. As a matter of fact, in A.D. 64, there was a massive fire that broke out in the city of Rome. Rome was divided up into 14 precincts, and all of them burned except for three. Now, there are historians who say that that Nero himself was responsible for that fire. Where there's a lot of conjecture about that, I don't know for sure. But this is what I do know for sure. Is that after that fire was over, guess who he blamed? Christians. Publicly and loudly. And then so the Roman Empire all of a sudden begins to see Christianity totally different. Up until this point, they've been kind of coexisting. They've been just kind of getting along. But at this point, everybody's crosshairs turns to every Christian they knew, and you're guilty. You're the reason our city has burned. You are the result, and something must be done. I can tell you all down through history, there have been leaders and there have been communities who look at another group of people and they say these words, something must be done. You know what it was? Let's kill him. Nero, in all of his evil, he, he kills, Nero killed his own brother-in-law, he killed his wife, and he would kill anybody else that threatened him. But his specific, most favorite target were Christians. And he was especially evil when it came to torturing and killing them. He would take people who were Christ followers and he would dip them in tar alive. And he would take a, a pole, a sharpened pole, and he would impale them in the, in the back and hang them on a pole, maybe on a crucifix while they're still alive, dipped in tar. And then he would casually light them on fire, and they would be lanterns for his garden. So get this picture. Here's Nero out enjoying a nice afternoon in his gardens around his palace. And, and the, the gardens are lit up, and you know how they're lit up? Because there are people burning alive on stakes dipped in tar who name the name of Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure... You are praying for Nero. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? That's, a, that's kind of a, I don't know about you, but that's, that's almost like a bitter pill to swallow. It really is. And, and there's, there's no way that you can have that kind of response to such an evil king unless you've been changed. There, there's no way that our flesh has any desire to pray for a king who's that evil. Yet, those who've been born again who have new life, you not only are called to do it, Paul says to Timothy, it's the first thing we must be doing. And if Paul can say to Timothy, Timothy, you pray for this evil king, 
as evil as he was, and we're not experiencing anything close to that degree of persecution, then we have no excuse to not be praying for those in leadership. From the presidency to the vice presidency to the leader of the House to the leader of the Senate, all the way down to our governor, our local mayor, and everyone in between, regardless if you agree or disagree, regardless if your worldview is the same as theirs, Paul is as clear as he can possibly be that as Christian people following Jesus, we have a responsibility to those leaders to pray for them. He says here that there is a foundation for this. There's a reason for this. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for our leaders so that they will make decisions that line up with God's rule upon this earth so that then we can lead a peaceful life so that we can continue to engage in the Great Commission work that we've been given to do. Now, I want you to understand something very clearly. There are going to be times where we're going to strongly disagree with our leaders. And we should. And when we do, and when they are not lining up with God's precept and God's word, we should be vocal about that. We should speak up about that. We should talk about those things that are leading to a breakdown in our society and our culture. But that still does not give us a free pass on praying for them. And it certainly doesn't call us to hate them. There is no place for hate in a follower of Jesus. I want to make you aware of something. This is one of these places that we are going to be in stark disagreement with our government and government officials. And I want to make you aware of it because it's coming and we're going to have to deal with it. Something called the Equality Act. The Equality Act is sitting in the House of Representatives. It's been passed three times. The first few times it was passed, we had a, a Senate that was led by a Republican majority and they wouldn't even take it up. But that's all changed now. And again, not talking about party politics here. I'm talking about policy that is going to affect right where you live. And it's going to affect quickly if this thing's signed into law. The Equality Act that has now moved over to the Senate and will be taken up at some point, our president has already indicated he'll sign it as it's written right now. Inside that law, this is what it's written. It will add to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, LGBTQ+, and, and all the other designations that are being added to that daily, which basically means that as a church body or as, a, as an organization, as a business, when you hire someone under the Civil Rights Act, you cannot discriminate against someone of a different ethnicity, and rightfully so. It does not matter what the color of that person's skin is in respect to the job that you're trying to fill. shouldn't matter at all. I agree with that 100%, but here's the issue. We're now adding a life choice into a civil rights movement. And here's what we have. We have people who are in either a, a homosexual lifestyle or they have, uh, they've chosen some gender other than their biological gender, and, and that is part of the way they live. And as a church, as an organization, imagine for a moment that we would have a, a staff position open, a, a staff pastor position. And we begin to seek someone to fill that position. And let's imagine that we, we would get some resumes and applications in from someone who's living in an openly homosexual relationship that goes completely contrary to God's Word and goes completely contrary to the Gospel. If we, if this law was passed, if we said that that person cannot be a candidate for this position, then that means we have violated their rights and that they can sue. 
Now, this is going to hit our Christian schools, our Christian universities, our Muslim schools. It'll, it'll hit Muslim schools. It'll hit Christian adoption agencies. Whatever religion that adheres to a, a set of doctrines that says that homosexuality is a sin or that humanity is either one of two possibilities, male or female, any organization that adheres to that kind of teaching is going to be hit with this, and they're going to be hit with it quickly. This particular bill is one of the greatest assaults on religious freedom that you have seen in your lifetime. Make no mistake about it. I'm not here to stir you up. I'm not here to get you excited. I'm here to inform you that what's coming from our government right now, we are in complete disagreement on. But that still doesn't give me the right to hate them, and it doesn't give me the right to cast them off and not pray for them. Right now more than ever, right now more than any other time in our history, we must be praying for these leaders. As a matter of fact, bow your heads. Father in heaven, We are not facing near the persecution that Paul and Timothy had to face, but yet we see things coming, decisions that are being made that are a complete, direct confrontation to your word, to your structure, how you've put the world together. Father, it is an attack on how you've ordered the world. So, Father, we ask right now for your intervention. We ask, Father, that, that you could turn the hearts of these leaders toward your truth, toward your word. For those leaders who are lost, for those leaders who do not know you, those leaders who've never surrendered their life to you, I pray that, that they would see the truth, that they would humble themselves, and that they would repent and find new life. But Father, we are called to pray for all these individuals from the highest levels down to our local governments. And Father, we want to be diligent in doing that. Father, while we disagree, and we disagree strongly, Father, never let it be said of any follower of yours that they hate, that their hate and their anger and their bitterness has turned to such that they're dwelling on it and thinking about it all the time. And the more they think, the angrier they get. And, and Father, they're beginning to lash out. Father, I pray that you put your hand upon their heart. Help them to see that the first thing they're called to is humble prayer before our Creator, knowing that you're in control. Thank you, Father, for these people, and thank you for their patience and time here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to show you the foundation of why Paul is saying that the first thing we must do is pray. Look at verse 3. He says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul says that the reason the church has been called to pray is because the, re the church has been called to the Great Commission work, and the Great Commission work is reaching over the boat to those who are drowning. And it may very well be that the leaders that you disagree with are drowning. It may be that they have, religion, they have religion, they have rituals, and they talk about them, but there's no life change in their life whatsoever. So our first response is to pray. Why? Because God desires all people, even Nero. God desired that he could see the truth and be changed by it. Paul says here that we have one God, the side of God our Savior, for there is one God, verse 5, and God's desire is 
for the church body, the work of the Great Commission that is central to why we're here. God desires that we be the conduit of his love and grace to a world that is sinking in sin and confusion. And he says that this one God desires that all be saved, that that they may worship him in, in freedom, that they may be able to worship him as a son or a daughter. He says that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And in verse 5, he says, there is one God and there is one mediator. That word mediator means that there is someone who steps into two groups of parties, two parties who are, who are far apart, two, two groups of people who are at war with one another or isolated from one another, separate, that this mediator is going to step in and try to bring these two groups together. And in this context, Jesus being the mediator between God and a lost humanity, you see, we were born separated from God, far, far, far away from God. And there was no amount of good works that you could ever do to bridge this gap back to God, even though in your soul of souls, that's what you wanted more than anything else. But God created you to seek after him. But over time and cultural influence and society and addictions and your flesh and everything else, there's this wide, wide gap between you and God. Somebody had to step in the middle. Somebody had to step in and, and, and advocate for this lost generation, somebody has to get in the boat and roll out into this water of lostness and brokenness. And Jesus, being the first missionary, did exactly that. He came into space and time. He, born as an infant in Bethlehem, grows up, lives a perfect life, doesn't start his ministry till, till late in his life, and he only has three and a half years. But during that three and a half years, He is building and encouraging and strengthening and confronting even leaders, uh, 12 men that are walking with him. He's mediating between God and man with that greatest work being at the cross because there's no amount of good works we could ever do to bridge this gap. So Jesus not only steps in, but, but he steps in and lays down his life so that we can be reconciled to a holy God. It says here, this next part, that that he was not only a mediator, but he gave a ransom. Do you see that? A ransom? The idea of ransom means that that in a war there are people who are captive, taken captive and put in prison. And another king says, here, I want to I want to pay a, a debt. I want to pay a price to get those people, my people, sprung out of that captivity. And the idea of ransom here is that no amount of works, no amount of good, no amount of anything we could ever do, we could ever do it long enough and perfectly enough to bridge this gap with God. So Jesus steps in as mediator, but he also steps in as a ransom payment. And God's demands upon us were so high and so great, there's no way we could meet them. But Jesus lives a perfect life. He was perfect in his speech. He was perfect in his actions. He was perfect in his thoughts. No sin whatsoever. He lives a perfect life, fulfills the law on our behalf, and offers himself as a sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews says that there will never need to be another lamb, ox, or or dove ever sacrificed, for his blood was perfect in every way. And he becomes the mediator, and he pays the ransom that the captives may go free. You see, what Paul's saying here is, that both God's desire and God's work is why we must intercede for those who are drowning, whether they be kings or whether they be folks who are homeless and have nothing. That we are to intercede for both groups of people and all groups of people, no matter their background, no matter where they come from. And look at verse 7. Not only 
It's God's desire, and not only is it the work that God has done, but it's also the missionary call. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Paul says this, For this I was appointed a preacher or a herald of the gospel and an apostle. He says, I'm, not, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The very fact that Paul was saved and then called to go to the Gentiles is the manifestation of God's desire to reach the nations. Paul, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul, who was a zealous Jew who would kill any Christian if he got his hands on them and arrest them, God calls this man to be a missionary and a church planner for the sole purpose of showing the world that God desires people to be saved. That, that Paul will go from Tarsus all the way up to the churches or the area of Galatia, and he would, he would plant churches all over Asia Minor. And then he would get the Macedonian call while he's in Troas, and he would cross over to Macedonia, and he would start at Philippi, and then he would go to Thessalonica, then he would go to Berea, then he would go south into Athens to the, to the world center of philosophy, and he would debate the great philosophers of Greek culture, and then he would go on down to Corinth and Nicaea, and he would go down there and he would preach the gospel and establish churches everywhere he went. Paul himself is the manifestation of God's desire that people be saved. Hyde Park Baptist Church is the manifestation of God's desire that all people of Robinson County and beyond be saved. You, as an individual, born again, in the boat, in the boat of safety, in the boat of security, your salvation, your calling out of darkness in the light is the manifestation of God's grace and God's message to the world that he loves people who are drowning and desires that they be saved. And guess what part you play in that? First of all, you pray. You pray. Your family, your friends, your colleagues, your acquaintances, they need your prayers. Can you imagine, disciple of Jesus, just, just consider this for a moment. Can you imagine not having Jesus in your life? Can you imagine, you even remember what it's like to not have him? And experience his blessings? Maybe it would do us well to consider where we've been brought from. Remember what it was like back there not knowing Christ. And maybe in that moment we can realize that those around us who don't have him need to be prayed for by you, especially you, because you have the connection. You know them. We're not talking about just strangers, although that's, they're important to be prayed for too. Somebody you meet at a gas station, one-off one off meeting, simple conversation, get in your car and pray for them. But your family and friends and colleagues and acquaintances need your prayers. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. It's one thing to go home and in your own private prayer time pray for them, but I'm going to ask you to make another step. I'm going to imagine here for a moment, I'm going to pick on Ryan McGirt right there because he's down front and I see him, so I'm going to pick on him. Let's imagine that, that Ryan is my biological brother. We're, we are brothers in Christ, but let's imagine he's my biological brother and he's lost. And in my private time, I've been praying for Ryan, and I've been praying for Ryan, and I've been praying for Ryan, and I'm not seeing anything. But what if I, what if I walk down and I put my hand on, on Ryan's shoulder one day? Maybe we're, maybe we're together at Mom's house, and we're getting ready to eat lunch, and I just slide around the table, and I put my arm around him. I look him right in the eye, and I say, Ryan, I haven't said this to you before, but I want to tell you now. You know the difference that Christ has made in my life. I hope you see that. I know I'm not perfect, and I miss, it, miss the mark a lot of ways, but I think, I think you see a difference in my life. 
And Ryan, I know that you don't have the same faith that I have. And I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you in my car. I've been praying for you at my house. I've been praying for you at church. I've even shared your name for others to pray with. But what I want to do right now is I want to pray with you right now. I'll pray with you right now. And I want you to hear. I want you to hear what I've been praying for you. So we bow our heads together and I say, Father in heaven, you know, I love my brother. I'd do anything for him. There's one thing I can't do for him. I can't change his heart. And Father, you know that I've been calling his name out before you for a long time. And Father, I know that your desire for him is even greater than mine because you gave your son to die on a cross that he may be saved. And Father, he's sinking right now. And whether he wants to admit it or not, he's sinking right now. And what I found, I want him to find. So Father, would you please save my brother? Would you please open his heart to the gospel? Would you, would you please help him to see the truth? Father, if I could have a part in that, I want to. If it's somebody else, bring them into his life. But Father, please, please save my brother. Do you think that's going to have an impact? Do you, do you think that's doing the work of an evangelist? Folks, please, let me tell you, it's not the presentation. It's your heart and your love for that individual. And what better way to express that? And what better way to connect with that person who is far from Jesus than in that moment, instead of praying in a closet somewhere, which is important, pray that with that person where they can hear your heart and hear what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and that the Holy Spirit in that moment can make an impact. Would you take that step this week? Would you be so bold? Would you be so bold this week to take the ones that you're praying for in the closet and go to that person and say, I'm going to pray for you today, right now, if you'll let me. I want you to know what I've been praying for you about. You know what that is? That's reaching over the edge of the boat. Did you know that that's the mission of the church? That's it? Reaching our arm over the edge of the boat? Not only do your family and friends and colleagues need your prayers, but your political leaders need your prayers, even the ones you disagree with. They need you interceding for them. They need to find Jesus. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be transformed by it. They're in love with power. They're in love with control. They're in love with money. They're in love with all kinds of gods, but the God you serve. And they need to come to that place of repentance, and you need to be praying for them. If Paul can pray for Nero, you can pray for your leaders. And finally, it's hard to mock or hate someone you're praying for. When you pray for your leaders, it gets really hard and really convicting when you begin to mock them. The same thing is true for your marriage. If your marriage is in trouble, it's a whole lot easier to curse than to pray. It's a whole lot easier to castigate them and throw them under the bus than it is to pray for them. And I'm convinced of this, that when you're praying for your spouse or that child or that grandchild, when you're praying for them, it's a whole lot harder to become bitter and angry. There's just something that God does in that moment that when you're calling them out before God, and it's very hard to get up from that place and walk right out and gossip about them. A whole lot more difficult. God will bring some conviction in your life. Our primary mission at Hyde Park is to not have nice buildings, 
to not have the best worship team, to not have the best technology, or the greatest staff, nice parking lot, and a nice gymnasium. Our purpose of Hyde Park, we exist for the people who are drowning. The question is, is when are you going to reach out of the boat? Matter of fact, the question may be, when are you going to start rowing out into this culture and being light in a dark world? Maybe that's the question. Maybe, maybe we're not even out there. Maybe, maybe we're not even seeing the lostness around us. Maybe, maybe we're in the comfort of our building, our life-saving station on the shore. We're nice, we're comfortable, and, and we're, we're fat and happy and well-fed. And as we're fat and happy and well-fed, we've gotten to the place where we don't care anything about the ones who haven't heard yet. But that's our primary mission. That's why we're here. That's why I'm still upright and breathing as a Christ follower. So maybe... Maybe it's time to reach out. Maybe it's time to reach out of the comfort zone, out of our boats, to those who are drowning all around us. Father in heaven, some of those who are drowning are our world leaders. They are drowning. And we pray for them. But Father, a little closer to home, maybe right here in this building and online this morning, there are some that are drowning this morning. They know it. They've been making every excuse in the world why it's not real. They have invested their life in rituals and religion, but they don't have any relationship with you, and as such, they are drowning. Father, I pray that, uh, that they would see that an arm is reaching out this morning, an arm stronger than mine, one that is saying to every lost person under the sound of my voice this morning that there is one more opportunity, one more chance, out of God's good grace and God's mercy. Father, for those who've already been pulled out are in the safety of the boat and the safety of your arms, are we just living for ourselves? Are, are we just so focused on me and mine and ours that we can't even begin to see the hurt and the pain around us, even in our own families? And Father, as disciples of you, we... We have a mandate. We have a calling. And to forsake that calling is to be disobedient. And to be disobedient is to sin. And, and the, the antidote for that is repentance. So, Father, have we, have we just grown comfortable with our stuff while there are people all around us that are drowning? Have we forsaken our first love? Have we walked away from our calling and our mission? Have we excused it away? Father, I pray that you would do, Father, I just pray that you'd do some work on the lives of people who name you as their king. Father, I pray that you would have your will in your way this morning. If they're lost, I pray that they would respond to the gospel. If they're adrift, given up, and not focused on what they're called to do, then they would repent and make things right with you. We ask it in Christ's name this morning. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 